Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hello, singers and singing teachers. Welcome to another episode of Sing, Coach, Conduct. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison. My next guest became a worldwide sensation when a video of him performing one of his dance tutorials for students and teachers earned millions of views on YouTube. Before the world knew John Jacobson as the double dream hands guy, he was already an internationally recognized music educator and choreographer who continues to spend his life bringing joy to others through song and dance. After 10 years of working for Disney, John took a leap of faith by pursuing other adventures, teaching, composing, planning events, and designing resources to improve the lives of students and teachers through music making. John is one of the most joy-filled people I have ever had the pleasure of speaking with, and this episode will leave you feeling refreshed and rejuvenated. Enjoy. Hi, John. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you being here. How are you this morning? Thank you, Megan. I'm doing great, and it's it's my privilege to speak with you this morning and and, uh, and be a part of this. You're doing great work. Oh, thank you so much. Well, hey, we're going to get started with the thing that maybe everyone who knows you has ever talked about, which is this internet phenomenon (laughs) thing that happened with this double dream hands. You became this double dream hands and double dream feet guy before uh, much of the world knew you for um, all the other things that you've done. So I just have to know, what is the story behind this video? (laughs) Well, you know, you can't run from it. So you just have to either, (laughs) you sort of have to just have to embrace it. And some things you just can't make up. <laughs> and I think Double Three Mans <laughs> is sort of one of those. Well, what happened was I was writing a song, or I wrote a song for kids to sing with my friend Mac Hop. And the song was um, Planet Rock. And the song was all about, like, this is the music classroom. It's like a planet where, where, we, where we do music all the time. And it's, it's the best planet in the world. It really rocks because it's all about music. <laughs> uh-huh. So that's what the song is about. Well, I got a call from my publishing company one day saying, John, did you know that somebody took your song Planet Rock and put it on the YouTube and called it Double Dream Hands and like 20,000 people have looked at it today. And oh, I, I, I wow. had no idea really what they were talking about with Double Dream Hands and all of that. So then I, real, I remembered that I was working with a bunch of little fourth graders and I was teaching them this dance and I did this move where my hand went behind my head and then reached out to the sky. And some little kid looked at me and said, what do you call that? And I said, I had no idea what to call it, but I just said, well, why don't we call it a dream hand? Because you, you know, you take something out of your head and throw it up to the sky like a dream. So we'll call that a dream hand. (laughs) About an hour later, I was doing, I did the same kind of move, but it was with both hands. So both hands went behind your head, right behind your head, and then spread out. And the same kid goes, well, what do you call that? And I said, well, that's a double dream hand <laughs> so, because you did both. I said, you, but you have to be in you have to be in college to do that one or something. Anyway, so I I had kind of forgotten awesome. all about that. And so when I got that call from my publishing company saying this double dream hands thing, I looked at it a little bit and I called Mac up mm-hmm. and said, Mac, 
did you know that somebody took our song Planet Rock and put it on YouTube and called it Double Dream Hands and 20,000 people have looked at it today? And he was like, ah, call me when it's 100,000. Mm. So I, about, <laughs> two, about two hours later, it was 100,000 people I had been looking at this. Oh, well, wow. then what's funny is that people start, I, this was a few years ago, you know, it's been like seven or eight years ago, but people, I had not really looked at YouTube all that much back then. And mm-hmm. so then I started looking at it. Well, people then, I didn't realize this, but people take your stuff and redo it, you know, and they'll like, they'll make, they'll do the dance themselves or, or they'll change the background or they might change the music or they'll, you know, they do fun stuff like everybody's doing with TikTok now, but they do it like just do fun stuff or weird stuff. Like they would like blow me up or something. You know? <laughs> I would like do the dance and then I'd explode or something. It was like intoxicating. It, mm-hmm. You you were like, I was watching all these things. Well, pretty soon it got to be like, you know, millions of hits. And then I was, and first, and people, the other thing that was crazy about it was that people comment on it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're commenting mm-hmm. about yeah. what you say. You know, a lot of them are kind of funny. Some of them are really like X-rated. And, <laughs> and like the first ones, the first several hundred, I would like try to answer people. I would say like, hey, people, watch your language. You know, kids are, kids are looking at this, you know. So I would like try. <laughs> then I realized I cannot answer all of these that people are commenting on. But I did still watch a lot of them. Some were hysterical. Like, for instance, when I'm teaching the dance to kids, I yell out instructions like, you know, swing to the left or you reach your hand or, or point over there or reach to the audience, you know. And one person wrote, he thinks there's an audience. Oh, <laughs> <out there." laughs> I, oh my gosh. I, I mean, they really were really funny. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of thought, well, okay, you can't do anything about this. You just have to embrace it, right? Like I said, so, you know, uh, I always say my mother's in a witness protection program because of this, but nonetheless, (laughs) it it got to be kind of fun. And then one day I got a phone call from uh, the Ellen DeGeneres show. And so they, I, I didn't know this, but on the Ellen show, they always do for her birthday, everything is a surprise. She doesn't know who the guests are or anything like that. It's all a surprise. And all week long leading up to her birthday, she had been using my video, my Double Dream Hands video. She had kind of been having fun with it on her show. She would show it and she would make, sort of make, I like Ellen because she has fun with you, but not, you know, not making fun of you kind Mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. Like she just has fun with people. And that's what she was doing with me was just kind of having fun with my video. So then the last day of the week was her birthday and then her her crew snuck me on into the studio in Burbank and they had all learned the dance and they all dressed like me the way that I dressed on that video that day I had khaki pants on and a yellow shirt and all of her cast had learned the dance oh. and so I the big surprise birthday surprise was me with all of her cast doing the double dream hands dance yeah with me it was just, what was really funny is that we had to hide backstage because it was a secret so the other the other guests on the show were like julia roberts and pink and i can't remember but so i'm all day backstage hanging out with julia roberts and pink hiding in the in the green room so it wasn't all bad so (laughs) hanging out in the green room with julia roberts is 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 pretty fun that is amazing (laughs) anyway it was it was crazy and and uh, then sprint used it as a commercial for Mm -hmm. sprint um Mm -hmm. sprint uh what is that? Telephones, you know. And then, then they took it. I got a, and they wanted me to do a new one called Double Dream Feet. 
And so, you know, it was crazy. So I made up this dance called Funny Feet and we did, uh, we did a move called Double Dream Feet and they used that um, cr cr for a Sprint commercial. And <laughs> then it got used on a couple of different, um, oh, what, are the, what are the big, um, the game, the, you know, the video games that kids play? Um, what's Final Fantasy? Final Fantasy, they used it. And the other one, uh, here's how hip I am. Yeah, oh, Fortnite, that was the other one. Fortnite used oh, okay, it as one okay. of their dances. Yeah, and so anyway, there you go. <laughs> so it, I, at some point, I just decided to laugh about it and, and have fun with it. And it's been you know an eye-opening experience, to say the least. Mm. <laughs> Somebody told me that I was, a, I was even a crossword puzzle clue someplace. And, you know, double dream hands was like a, <laughs> now nah, that's when you made it big. <laughs> Could you ever have imagined? Who'd have thunk it, you know? Yeah. So it, it's kind of funny because, well, first off, how many people can say that they were a birthday gift for Ellen DeGeneres? <laughs> that's true. That's true. She probably doesn't even remember it, but it was hysterical. If you, if you, if you look on YouTube, you can sort of go just Google like Ellen and, and Double Dream Hands, and you should just see the look on her face when she sees me. It's sort of half horror and half she doesn't know what to think. I think so. <laughs> um, so, what was the context of this video? Because I know when people are watching it, it seems so out of context. Like, where does this come from? But what was the reason it was recorded? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, why that particular one got to be so popular. I've made thousands of videos like this. I had a, for 19 years um, with Hal Leonard Corporation, I did a magazine called John Jacobson's Music Express. And we, and, and that was, it was a magazine, you know, a, a product basically for um, music teachers to help them be more effective in their jobs. And it was a subscription service kind of thing. And a part, we'd write songs for them and, and lesson plans and lots of different, you know, things to help them be their music teachers. And one of the things we would do is I would make videos of me teaching the kids dances to some of the songs. And so literally thousands of songs that I've made videos to, and I'm usually I dance either facing the camera or away from the camera. And the idea is the teachers just project this in their classroom and I take over their class and teach the kids the dance. And so I've made thousands of these over the years. They were all over YouTube, but just that one seemed to kind of take off, I guess, and struck somebody as funny. So. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So you've been doing that for a long time, and this yeah. th this is the one that I, made I it. guess so. It was never my intention to, to be a YouTube sensation. <laughs> <laughs> my, my intention was that to help teachers. Well, I want to thank you for this video because it, it is, you know, uh, I would ask you what made it so viral, but you know, in watching it, I feel like I already know the answer and that it is just such pure joy to watch. You know, I, I hope so. It's, um, you know, when you're a teacher, especially when you're teaching little kids, mm -hmm. you over, I think even older kids too, you exaggerate everything. It's like when you're telling <laughs> a little kid a story, yeah. you do everything bigger than life so that they, mm -hmm. you know, and even when you're working with middle school kids or something, you do things bigger. Hopefully you get them to do it somewhere close to that or mm -hmm. even meet your halfway so mm -hmm. that they're executing, say, the dance or something somewhat closely but you're you're over the top in teaching it or telling the story so yes and then you put it on a little screen on a computer and you're <laughs> over the top teaching and dancing just looks even more over the top so i yeah. i admit that i i can recognize that i look like a kind of a crazed old man on there dancing around but you know 
it I know it's good for kids. I know it's good for teachers, and so I I can't worry about looking foolish because I, I just know it's it's a healthy thing for kids to get up and move and dance. So it is. I it just is. keep doing it, and I don't know how to do anything else, so I have to keep doing it. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you what it has brought love into the world, and that's what I see the video as being. I was doing my research on you, and I'm looking at all these videos that people made in dedication of your video, and I think that's really the point I want to make about it is that it really brought so much joy and love into the world that didn't exist before. Well, it was it is some some of the best things. We can always use more love in the world, right? And if that if that helps move along. One of my favorite ones is somebody put me up with the with Beyoncé dancing behind me doing the single ladies. <laughs> I'm a single lady. And somebody somebody wrote on there, he's not even looking at the girls. I'm like they weren't there when I did it. <laughs> But, you know, I think most people, most people laugh with it and at it and have a good time and, and, you know, have fun. I've seen so many like wedding parties where they all do the double dream hand dance at their wedding dance or, you know, um, frat boys with a beer in one hand and doing the double dream hands in the other hand all together. I think this is crazy, but you're right. If it brings joy and love to the world, I'm all for it. So, so before you were double dream hands guy, you had this whole other thing going on. I mean, you were known for being this incredible music educator and choreographer and, and this guy that worked at Disney and has done all this stuff with Hal Leonard. And so I want to talk about all those amazing things you've done. And I want to start with your family. Like, where did John Jacobson get his fire and his passion? So, yeah, you come from a family of teachers, right? Absolutely. My, my father was a superintendent of schools mm-hmm. and a little town in Wisconsin. My mom was a fifth grade teacher. I have nine brothers and sisters, so it's 10 kids. Um, wow. And believe it or not, 10 kids in 10 years, and we're not Mormon or Catholic. <laughs> so it just, I think my dad, my dad being the superintendent of school, felt it was his personal responsibility to fill the school or something. <laughs> anyway, so there were 10 of us, a little tiny town, just 900 people, 909 people in Blair, Wisconsin. And so, you know, you're, it's kind of one of those situations where you get to you get to do everything. You can play sports and you can be in music and you can, you know, do everything that there is to do because you're the only people there doing it. <laughs> and so it was a great, great place to grow up mm-hmm. in, a, in a wonderful little town, a um, bunch of farmers and dairy people and, and the teachers. And so, yeah, um, teaching. And you know, here's an interesting thing, too. My dad was also one of 10 kids and mm. they all were teachers. Interesting. And so teaching has just always been part of our our life our family life for generations mm-hmm. and i think the bottom line really for us was um we my parents expected us to go out and find something meaningful to do with your life mm-hmm. and none of us could find anything more meaningful than being a teacher mm-hmm. in the end i mean we just looked around and thought this is this is the best way we can contribute to this world is to to be teachers and so that's the path we followed that our our parents and even our grandparents um, led the way on. So wow. um, I think it was a way of we've always believed in education as a, as a, as a way to lift yourself up. We were privileged. There's no getting around it. We were privileged to have educated parents. We were privileged because of race and ethnicity and uh, where we grew up. And um, you know we didn't have a lot, but we had enough. And so I mean, a family of teachers. We had we had plenty. And I think that privilege, because we, we recognize that privilege, I just feel like we, all of my brothers and sisters and my parents and uncles and aunts just felt this obligation to, um, to give back to the world. And, and teaching was a way of doing that in whatever subject. 
I just happen to choose music. So you refer to teaching as being a higher calling. I, th- I definitely think that, that teaching is a higher calling. Much There are other professions that have a sense of higher calling to it, but what could be more important than preparing the next generation of citizens? Um, and I, I, in my own work in writing, I think now the, the big thing people talk about is like SEL, social emotional learning and all of that. That's what we've been doing. Our, that's what I've been doing my whole life is it, that was always more important to me than teaching TT Tata or, you know, really even teaching. I, I think teaching music itself is legitimate. Just teaching music. Great. But if you can also create good teach about humanity and teach kids about honor and courage and honesty and love through music it's frosting and it and it's so so important and that's the part of the whole thing that I all that I embraced as a young man I think and it's it sort of made a life of that why do you think education is so important in the lives of people well I, I think it's important to be for a lot of reasons but um, and especially education in the arts because in the end, it's these it, teaching creativity and teaching um, uh, thinking outside the box, which we tend to do a lot in music and singing and dancing and playing an instrument you, in the in the creative arts, especially. That's why I think they're so they are especially crucial. If we're only going to teach one thing, we should teach creative arts, because in the end, it's what's going to keep us as a as a nation competitive in globally, for one thing. If it's we're never gonna we're never gonna be competitive globally um, by sheer numbers, you know there are other other countries that have way more people than us, so we're not going to be able to compete really in in that way with, with just sheer numbers. But we can compete if we are the most creative thinkers, and I think by teaching the arts, we really are encouraging kids to think outside the box, think about new ideas, new approaches to solving problems. And that's going to keep us at the forefront of where we're going in the future. So I, I think an education that is, yes, we need science, we need technology, but that combined with teaching the arts is what's really going to keep us uh, competitive in a global world. And that, to me, is why that's one of the reasons. There are many others, but it's one of the reasons I, that I think teaching the arts is so important. Do you think it teaches us something about failure and resilience? Well, I do think that when a kid takes up an instrument, for instance, or decides to learn to sing or play the piano or, or dance or whatever it is, they do pretty quickly recognize that it takes, it's, it takes some rigor. It, you're not going to be good at it right off the bat at almost any of it. I mean, most of us come out of the womb singing, but to really be good at it, you know, um, it takes practice and, or, and it, takes, it, it does take failure. It does, you know... It, it takes a long, long time to be really proficient at something like playing an instrument. But that's a great lesson to learn, that the things that are the most rewarding are those that you've worked at really hard and maybe for a long time and maybe you did fail at to begin with um, or it was a struggle to begin with and it wasn't all that rewarding when you weren't that good at it. But as you got better and you recognize, ha, ah, this hard work is starting to pay off. That, I think, is something you learn really well um, by being involved in, in music and in the arts in general. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that. That's so important. 
so when did you know that music was going to be a part of your career, that that's what you were going to be doing with your life? Right. Really good. You know, I just always thought if I, if I thought of what I loved to do the most was to get up on a soapbox and sing a song. I mean, I loved to do that even as a little kid. And my dad, my dad loved programs. I mean, we put on programs all the time. And of course, you know, singing in the car was just crowd control for when you have 10 <laughs> kids. And we'd go on these road trips, all, all 12 of us mm, in a car, mm-hmm. in one car. You know, that was back when you didn't all wear seatbelts and things. <laughs> but, you know, we'd all 12 of us packed into these car, into the car. And we'd go on these long trips around the country singing all the time. And my dad knew more verses to more songs than any human. But later on, we found out that he just made them up. You know, <laughs> just to kind of keep us all under control. We'd sing and sing and sing in the car. But so I did always love that. I never really have thought of career much. I never thought about what's, what's my career going to be. When I was in um, high school, I auditioned for a group that we had in Wisconsin called the Kids from Wisconsin. Mm. And it was just, you know, a sort of like an all-state show choir, I guess you'd say. It was, um, you'd audition and they'd take, I think it was about 24 singer-dancers and about a 20-piece band. And we'd get together for the summer Mm-hmm. And we would um, travel around the Midwest mostly and uh, sing and dance at all the county fairs and, and state fairs and, and little communities. It's still going. It's, a, it's an organization that's still going and doing great work. So some teachers at my little school encouraged me to audition for that Kids from Wisconsin group. And I did. I suppose I was 15 or 16 years old. And I got in it. And so the next three summers... I did that while I was still in high school. So I would travel in the summer with the kids from Wisconsin. When I finished um, high school then, and it was time to go to college, and, and by the way, going to college was not like, um, and you, you could do college or you do something else in our family, it was just expected. You're gonna go to college. At least mm. you're gonna try it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was lucky enough to, at that time to get into the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. So I went to the UW-Madison and, um, we had a group there called the Wisconsin Singers, which was just sort of like kids from Wisconsin, but for older kids. And it was with the university there. So I auditioned and, and was fortunate enough to get into that. So my college career was, I sort of joked that I majored in Wisconsin Singers. The rest <laughs> of those classes over there, I went to and sort of showed up, but, but I majored in Wisconsin Singers. That's where I learned what I do. And what was neat is I um, then, so that was my school year, I would be in Wisconsin Singers, but then I auditioned, you know, theme parks were the place that you could go and get experience as a song and dance person, uh, you know, in the summer. So I auditioned for Walt Disney Productions. Uh, They used to go around the country and they'd audition. I think I went down to Chicago with a couple of my friends and we all three of us auditioned for this group that they had in the summers called the All-American College Singers. And so um, I was fortunate enough to get hired by Disney then to go to Florida Mm. and um, be a part of the All-American College Singers, which was six boys and six girls from around the country, college age type people with a band behind us. And we would go down to uh, Disney World and we would would get to... um, go to class during the day with dance classes or boy, we would have voice lessons by like from Mel Torme or Carol Lawrence or we'd have mm. dance class with Cheetah Rivera or oh, wow. people that they would bring in to give us these dance lessons and then sort of to pay Disney back we would perform in the park during the the rest of the day, which pay him back. I mean, it, it was our privilege and we were so excited to do it. So we'd do three shows and a couple of parades and all that. So I loved it. It was like, I couldn't imagine anything 
more wonderful than getting up every day and going to Main Street USA and having a dance class and then going out there and performing for thousands of people and somebody else set up the risers and somebody even washed my costume for me. And it was just an amazing jump from that little town of 900 people to being there at Disney World doing that. Well, you could, there were a couple things about it. You could only do it one summer. You, got, you could get some college credit for it, but then they would always choose one person to come back for a second summer to be sort of the student leader of that group, like, they, they, like a line captain kind of of that group. And I was fortunate enough to be selected to come back a second summer to be that person that would be sort of the, the lead for the next group of college kids that came in. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I did that two summers while I was in college. And then when I finished college, did my student teaching at a little town in Wisconsin, Barneveld, Wisconsin, there are some of the worst saxophone players in the world right now in <laughs> Barneveld, Wisconsin, because of me. <laughs> anyway, but I did, I did my student teaching, a life-changing experience my student teaching was because I had the greatest um, supervising teacher, a woman named Jan Swenson, that was just uh, one of the greatest influences on my life forever. So I did all that, but... When, before I even finished my senior year, Disney had already offered me a full-time job as soon as I graduated. So mm, wow, I graduated from college and like the next day moved to Florida for full-time. And then I, then I spent a number of years working for Disney in a bunch of different capacities. First, a song and dance guy. I was just, I was a kid of the kingdom and I did the hoop-de-doo review, which was a Disney show or a dinner show kind of thing. And I would do all the convention shows like people would come into Disney World and they would um, <clears throat> they would rent out the whole hotel and they would do a convention there for, say, it might be an airline, like Delta Airlines or whatever. And we would then do shows for them as part of their package that they would get. So ton, we'd do a 50s show or we'd do a big band show or we'd do a musical world show from, and anything like that. It's just, it was just amazing opportunity to learn mm. from so many wonderful directors and always be performing for appreciative crowds and all of that. Well, what I think Disney recognized about me pretty quickly, I mean, Disney as a company, was that I was probably a better teacher than I was a performer. I was the one. So they assigned me the job always of teaching the new people that they hired the shows that I already knew. So if we hired a new kid of the kingdom, it was my job to teach that kid the show. Mm-hmm. And I, it was, I, so my job gradually morphed from being a performer into being more of, I was everybody's assistant at Disney World. All the real show directors and all the real choreographers, I was their assistant. Mm. Which So I would help teach the shows and, and all of that, which was great training because all of these wonderful uh, choreographers and directors that I, that I was assisting, I learned what they did already. And some of them were just magnificent teachers themselves. So my own choreography style, if you will, came as an amalgamation of all these wonderful people like Forrest Baruth and Marilyn Magnus and, and uh, Barnett Ritchie and other Gary Pabe and all these directors and people that you never heard of, but they were the ones putting these shows on at Disney World. So I did that for a number of years and, and then little things would come up where all of a sudden the real show directors didn't really want to mess with this little show. Like, and so they'd say, John, you go and choreograph that show. Like the first <laughs> thing I ever choreographed for Disney, this is hysterical. We did, it was during a presidential inauguration. And so uh-huh. I think it was Reagan's inauguration or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we had a contest with, with Sears stores. We had a contest where all the kids who would go into Sears stores and they would vote for 
president, who they wanted to be the president. Okay. And their choices were like Cruella de Vil, The Big Bad Wolf, <laughs> and Winnie the Pooh. So, of course, Winnie the Pooh won. And then, and then we bought like 500 families to Disney World. And underserved kids, underprivileged kids came to Disney World for inaugural ceremonies for like three or four days mm. of all these Winnie the Pooh inaugural ceremonies. Mm. <laughs> so my job was to help write a song and choreograph the inaugural parade. And I'm not making this up. This is the song we wrote. Winnie the Pooh is the president for you. We're putting Pooh in the White House. (laughs) (laughs) And they let us do it. (laughs) Is that not a riot? Well, I think they let us do it because it was only a one a one shot deal, you know, it was a one time one thing. But yeah, so little yeah. things like that would come up, and I would choreograph it, and then little bigger shows would come up. And as long as it went well, they'd let me try something else. Well, pretty soon my specialty kind of became like doing extravaganzas, mm. shows that were like like halftimes of the uh, football games, or the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, or one summer we took over Radio City Music Hall, and I helped choreograph the Disney show at Radio City, mm, and then wow. we were opening Tokyo Disneyland and I they hired me to go to Tokyo for a year to help both put shows together and to act as a performer so I was a performer and a show director at Disney World for a year then it was the Disney Ice Show I traveled with the Disney Ice Show trying to teach you know Donald Duck to do a dance on skates it, I know it's a weird world but it was such a great training ground and so for about a decade my life was pretty Disneyfied, you know, all along, and I loved it. <laughs> Disneyfied. <laughs> and maybe the most obvious question next might be, then why did you leave? You know, when you loved it so much, which mm-hmm. I did, and there were so many opportunities there. But I was, you know, whatever, thirty years old or something, and I, I thought, you know, I could be here for the rest of my career, or I could go out and kind of be my own Disney in my own small way, have my own dreams, and and all of that, and. This combination I had of uh, professional entertainment experience now and my education background and passion for education ended up being such a great combination for me because it was I was getting to use both of those things together if I got back in the education world. So I was I decided I'm going to leave Disney and see what happens. And I got a job. Um, somebody recommended me to Fred Waring, who is mm. young people may not know who Fred Waring was, but at one time yeah. he was a huge name in choral music yeah, in yeah. America and on Broadway and any other places. And he would always do a summer workshop for teachers up at Penn State University in State College, Pennsylvania. And he hired me to from Disney to go there and teach at this workshop for music teachers for about five weeks in the summer. And, um, and with other wonderful choreographers like Stevie Rivers and Sally Albrecht and mm. these friends, we all mm. became friends there teaching teachers. Well, what happened was I was teaching these teachers for these few weeks and then there the, those teachers invited me to come to their schools during the school year and help them stage their musical or their concert or their show choir or whatever it was. And I started getting all these gigs going out and working at schools. Um, so without really planning it, I, all of a sudden I had this career of going out and like a freelance choreographer, show director, in mostly in schools. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that kind of blossomed into what I ended up doing that for the kind of the rest of my career. That's kind of what I did as a freelance 
go to God. And I have to admit, sometimes it was hard. The first couple of years, it was kind of hard because I'd be watching like the Super Bowl and I'd see the halftime and all my friends from Disney were there doing mm-hmm. the halftime of the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here I was in, you know, Akron, Ohio with a middle school <laughs> fifth grade choir or something like that, uh-huh. trying to put together a little musical. There were times when I was like, oh, what have I done? Mm-hmm. But in the end, I think it was the right path for me. And, mm. and getting back to what we we're talking about at the beginning, that sense of higher calling and mission. You know, I love, I just love what music teachers have to do every single day, which is, you know, at Disney, if I wanted the perfect shaped kid, you know, or the perfect color or the right hairdo or whatever, we'd just hire that. We'd go find that person. We'd hire it. Music teachers teach whatever gets off the bus. Yep, and I yep. love that. That It's wonderful to, um, it's wonderful to have beautiful dancers or singers who can just do it like that you know just do it they've had the training or whatever but and that's exciting to me to work with those people but I'm never as excited by that as I am when I see that little girl in a too tight tutu that thinks does not once think of themselves as a dancer and all of a sudden loses themselves one day in the music and feels beautiful Mm. to me that scores Every time. And you see that every day when you work in public education. And I, and it, that gets me through. That gets me through every time. Just knowing that we bring that. We bring that to kids. Mm. And we help them yeah. feel valued. Feel beautiful. Thank you. Mm. Ugh, so good. So good. Okay. <laughs> so what about um, at Disney, you did all this extravaganza stuff, right? And I think it's easy to feel a lot of energy when you have hundreds of people in a show and all this, and you're surrounded by the magical kingdom, but you know that most of us don't live in the magical kingdom, <laughs> right? So we have, uh, and you already talked about this, John, that some of us have small choirs and, you know, we, we, we got a, a few people to work with and sometimes people walk through the door and they're very talented and other times they're not and we have to pull that out of them. How do we bring the feeling of the extravaganza into a smaller environment and get people fired up about it in, in any environment? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to realize that, you know, kids, they don't know any differently than, you know, they've not been at Disney World singing and dancing in front of thousands of people. You know, their grandma and grandpa sitting on the bleachers in the no purpose room is just as exciting as anything to them. I remember when I used to play junior high basketball when I was in, in you know, middle school, junior high, and my dad would sometimes have a meeting because he was superintendent of school. So he'd have a meeting at night, you know, and you just, it wasn't as much fun to play when my dad wasn't sitting on the bleachers. And halfway through the second half, when his meeting was over and he walked in and sat down there on the bleachers and was cheering me on, I could run faster, I could jump higher. It was, the whole experience was so much more rewarding because Mm -hmm. there was my mom and dad sitting there watching. Mm -hmm. And so kids, it doesn't take but an audience of one for kids to get excited about getting up and showing their stuff and, and getting excited. So I actually think that the excitement level there is mostly just making sure that the fa- the rest of the faculty, I mean, there's nothing, there's a, it's a great idea to bring a faculty member into your class once in a while. Your kids are performing something. The mm-hmm. kids want to perform mm-hmm. for somebody. And they, and, it, and even if it's just one person that they admire, be it a teacher, a family, friends, whoever it might be, um, that that's enough of an extravaganza for most kids, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and you have to have some things to look forward to as you get older, too. You know, you don't if you have these great high experiences as a 
fourth grade or even as a high school kid, what do you do when you when you get out of there? And so I think, you know, it's um, you grow to that. And uh, and I think it does go back to that feeling of, well, it's a different kind of high to perform for thousands of people in front of Cinderella's castle than it is to perform for a small, intimate group of people in your living room. I mean, mm, it's different, mm-hmm. but it's no yeah. less thrilling or, yeah. or even rewarding in my in my view. But to be able to bring a little of that Disney pizzazz or sparkle into a small town in Iowa is is a privilege. And it was it was wonderful to be able to do. I'm sort of like a Disney character anyway. So, you know, especially after like, especially after Double Dream Hands, you know, when I walk into a room of little kids, yeah. you know, um, they kind of look at me like I'm from outer space anyway, just the same way they look at Mickey Mouse, I think, in some ways. So I, I'm a little, I got a little of that in me anyway. So, Where do you get that from, John? Where do you get your, your joy and your, your Disney personality? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I've been blessed with a really, I've been blessed, first of all, with just innate, inborn good energy. You know, I've just, I've always had good energy and been healthy and had a lot of support from family and friends. So I don't have much to complain about, frankly. My life's been been pretty good. And um, you know, like I like I said earlier, you know, people have like me, you know, you know, middle to old age white guys have had a smoother path than a lot of other people in our country. And I, I recognize that that privilege and uh, don't take it lightly or for granted. Um, and so, you know, it it ha- I haven't had the struggles that other people have had. That doesn't mean that every day is a is a bowl of cherries, but it but it does it, it has been relatively easy for me. And I think part of that too is um, I never cared that much about making money. I never cared that much about. I just wanted to to the measure of my success is how many kids are being affected by my music, how many teachers are being helped by my textbooks or the lesson plans that I that I've made for them or the videos that I've made mm-hmm. I measure my success by how many how many I can affect in a positive way um, mm-hmm. and that that has helped I think most people for instance think they need more money than they really need mm-hmm. and um, we can get by with a lot less uh, in a lot of occasions that not not poor poor but you know you don't just don't need that much I don't I wear the same thing all the time I mean I don't throw <laughs> I mean, I look back at pictures of workshops I taught 15 years ago and I'm wearing the same shirt. You know, I just don't need that. I, what I need mm-hmm. is an audience. What I need is a class. What I need is to feel that my contribution is, is valued and my work is being is utilized. Mm-hmm. Um, the greatest compliment I ever had we, when I did the Fred Waring workshop, we had these sisters, these two sisters that were also nuns. So we called them the sister sisters, you know, and they were just delightful, delightful people, sister sisters. One time after one of my dance classes, I was walking a little bit behind the two sisters and one looked at the other one and said, that John Jacobson could make a stone dance. And I thought, that's what I want on my tombstone. You know, (laughs) it sounds so biblical for one thing, but (laughs) I I absolutely love that. And um, that, that's that would get, that's what gets me up in the morning every day and doing doing what I do. Um, you know, my mom's 90 years old. She's got great energy. So some of it is just sort of inborn, the energy thing. Hmm. But then, you know, following your heart, doing what you love to do. The thing I love to do since I've been a little kid was sing and dance. So I still sing and dance because that's what I love to do. Hmm. I, I don't know if I'd be as happy had I followed a more normal career. <laughs> 
can we go back and talk about Jan Swenson? <clears throat> you said that she was so important to you in your life, mm-hmm. and I, I just wonder if you would if you would share with me, you know, what she meant to you and what she taught you. Yeah, for sure. Jan Swenson was my supervising teacher when I did my student teaching in this little town, Barneveld, Wisconsin. And, and Jan was an extraordinary, is still an extraordinary woman. Um, just for one thing, and I, and I don't know why I even say this, but she was born with, with um, an arm and a half. So mm-hmm. one of her, she only has a half an arm on one side. So, mm-hmm. so she teaches with auto harp. She taught herself to play the auto harp because okay. um, she can do that. With, with an arm and a half. And so, first of all, that was just sort of miraculous to me, but it was never a handicap for her, this having having one arm was never a handicap. She um, she golfed, she played tennis, she, you know, did everything. She played uh, French horn was her main instrument. Hmm. Um, and she and I would play, we would, we would play three-hand duets on the piano. Um, <laughs> and the kids would just look at us like, and we would get the giggles together, the two of us, and the kids would just look at us like we were from outer space. But um, she was... But most importantly, she taught me and, and sort of reinforced in me a sense of values about what's important. Um, she and I even did a couple of trips like down to Mexico to do some, um, uh, we were studying hunger issues. Uh, we did this through a church group, but we went down into in uh, the mountains of Mexico for three weeks of study um, about hunger issues in, in Central America and how the policies of America are affecting Central American countries. And just she was a person that led me to those kind of experiences. So not only was she a fabulous music teacher, but she was a great teacher of life. And she allowed me to um, join her journey for a short time there uh, while doing my student teaching. But we remained very good friends uh, throughout our lives. And uh, I still consider her one of the great influences. Right, right after my parents, I'd have to say that Jan Swenson was one of the really great influences of my life. What do you think the greatest teachers have in common? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. First of all, it, they have to like kids. Number one. I mean, I, when, when, if I was a superintendent of schools or a higher, somebody in charge of hiring teachers, my first question would be, do you like kids? Because <laughs> if you don't, mm-hmm. you probably should find a different profession. So yeah, I think the, the love of children and or whatever age you teach is the number one thing that, that great teachers have in common. Um, and the second thing is they have to have a thick skin. <laughs> you, have, mm-hmm. you have to have a, a very small ego and a thick skin in a, in a lot of it because you, it's so easy to be deflated in a and because teaching is, although you're around a lot of people, it can be kind of a lonely profession. You know, it, if you're not team teaching, you're the only adult in the room. And, you know, who knows if what it's so easy to be deflated. One one seventh grade girl rolls her eyes or at you and you can just all your insecurities come racing back to you that or, you know, I was like <laughs> yeah. I was teaching a bunch of fourth and fifth grade boys a dance one day. And, you know, and I was I was all excited and showing them this dance. And this one little boy looks at me and goes, why would I want to do that? <laughs> you know, and you kind of, huh? I never thought about that. And of course, my response was, well, if you could do that, why wouldn't you want to do that? <laughs> you know, there are so many kids who never get this opportunity mm-hmm. to do something like this. And here you are. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, what you're going to wear. All you got to worry about is, do I go left? Do I go right? You know, you just your your whole heart and soul and mind 
doesn't have to worry about a thing except doing this dance. Mm. That's a privilege. So, but it can be, that little boy could deflate a, te- a teacher who wasn't confident that what they were doing was important. That little girl with her rolling eyes could, could really send you. Or a non-supportive principal or teachers that don't quite get what it is we do. You know, that could really be difficult day after day to, to keep going in the classroom. So I think most teachers that I know that are really good, they, they know in their heart of hearts that what they're doing is important and it's making the world a better place. And that is their motivation more than tone quality, more than perfect pitch. It's, it's that, that what we know, what we offer every day to those kids is making the world a better place. And I think the best teachers believe that in their very core. Hmm. It's obvious how much it means to you just to see other people succeed, uh, that your purpose in life is to help bring other people joy and to help them be successful. And this ties in with your uh, America Sings, your nonprofit organization. So please tell us about that. Share with us what that's about. I definitely will. You know, that reminds me of a, of a quote that um, Mac Huff always uses that about um, his, he feels his job as an arranger is to arrange success, mm-hmm. you know, and so mm-hmm. especially in the education world. And I think that's true. A teacher's role of any subject is to help your students succeed. And, you know, that so all of your lessons are, are, are reached toward that. And, and it is thrilling for teachers, I think, to see their students succeed, see their their fellow teachers succeed, mm-hmm. see their community mm-hmm. succeed. You know, that's what teachers do. We, we help arrange success, and that is our great reward. Mm-hmm. I, 30-some, 1987, so this is ancient history to somebody as young as you or to a lot of people, <laughs> but it, I was um, you know, traveling around doing, doing what I'm doing, doing workshops and things like that, and there was sort of a big push at that time and there still is I guess there was a lot of competitions that go on and I used to get hired to judge these choir competitions it it never quite felt right to me it just didn't feel like the contribution that I wanted to make was to watch kids perform and then judge which one is better than the others or watch choirs perform and and then give them a rating I've I've got a little less militant about it in my old age because I see that um you know that that competition can drive kids to uh to a quest for excellence I I get that I get it it just wasn't the role that I wanted to play as a teacher was to be a, a judge of that I think competition can be healthy but learn it in politics and in business and in the wheel of fortune and trivial pursuit or something <laughs> I think the arts can be one place where everybody can be a winner and why would you want to be you know give up why would you want to tell somebody well you were second best in in this or you were last or whatever in in the arts it's just not the contribution I wanted to make so in 1987 after sort of making that stand in that speech a few times to a few groups I thought well you should put your you know energy where your mouth is so I talked about this with my friends people like Matt and Fritz Mountford and others Emily Crocker and said I want to do up I think kids will be just as motivated by something other than um, a trophy that you you know that you win I think we can do better than that I think they'll be just as motivated for instance by helping other people you know, and so mm-hmm. I'm going to do a non-competitive festival 
and I'm going to do it. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time because I did my master's at Georgetown. And I, so I thought, well, we'll do it here. We'll have a festival here in Washington, D.C. And I went down to the Park Service and I asked them if I could have it at, in front of the <laughs> Washington Monument. Mm-hmm. First they said no, but eventually I just kept going back. And eventually they said, well, I guess you can. It's America's backyard. You can get a permit to do that. So I did. And then I thought my goal was to like have 50... Um, choirs. I wanted to have 50 choirs come together in April of 1989. And um, we would get there in front and we'd all sing and dance. I, my idea was one from every state. And so I, you know, I talked about this idea as I walked and went around the country teaching. And I, um, you know, tried to encourage my friends who had choirs to bring, well, how are we going to pay for this? And we had to build stages and sound systems and all of that and, you know, give everybody a tasteful t-shirt and all. So we said, well, we'll charge every kid 20 bucks. Mm. And so every kid, we gave them two years notice and you got to raise $20 and you come and you, of course they had to get to Washington DC too. So there's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that first year we had 435 choirs, 15,000 kids, 30,000 wow. participants with the parents and chaperones mm-hmm. that all came to Washington DC. So all of a sudden, and, and the way it works is you come there and you, um, we set up a stage and your choir gets to perform for like say a half an hour, you get a slot to do your performance. And when you leave the stage, then you go to another area and you might get a workshop on like from Kirby Shaw on, on improvisation, or hmm. you might go to another tent and get something about auditioning or something. And then you go to another tent where you make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to <laughs> go feed homeless people in the city that we're having the festival in that night. We oh. go to another place and we make little mm-hmm. kits for kids where we put together shampoo and toothpaste and pens and pen and games and things like that that we take out to shelters for underserved kids or McDonald McDonald houses or something you know we we service so it's a way of kids kind of giving back they get this privilege of being a part of this big thing but we, they learn that with so many people just doing a little bit you make one peanut butter and jelly sandwiches sandwich well we got 15,000 kids that's 15,000 sandwiches to feed people that night mm. and so that was we added this service element to it and well, that first year, all of a sudden, I had to build 21 stages around the Washington Monument because we had that many schools that wanted to do performances. And then at the end of the day, we all get together in the big field and we do a big sort of, I always call it sort of a G-rated Woodstock, you know, <laughs> where we all get together and sing and dance together. Uh, fun. A choir of 15,000. Well, I was only going to do this once, but because it was so, um, it received so well, um, we decided then to continue, and we we actually formed a nonprofit 501c3 company, and now we've been doing it. What is this? 19, you know, it's 2021 right now, right? So we've been doing it for over 30 some years, um, and we will in fact be back in Washington D.C. this next May 6th and 7th of 2022. Great, we'll be in D.C. May 6th and 7th. Yep, doing another America Sings. Everybody's welcome. They can go to our americasings.org website and see what it's all about. And it's so non-threatening. And, you know, we even think, you know, it's outdoors. So we're probably going to be able to, you know, with the spacing and all of that, you know, we'll be real careful about the COVID things and all that. But hopefully by next May, schools and and community choirs and things are going to be able to... um, travel again and go out and show their stuff and and mm-hmm. and do what we mm-hmm. used to do we're really hopeful that that will happen we already have 500 kids signed up for it so wow. we know we've, we're going to have some that are going to show up yeah and um so it's it's been a really rewarding awesome experience and i'm i'm relentless 
about hitting up my friends to volunteer for it. <laughs> so all of the people that you have interviewed and many, many others uh, that are uh, in, involved, particularly in music education, so many of them in, have been involved in America Sings over the years. And, uh, and all everybody that works on it, everybody I, is a volunteer. And so it's, it's kind of my volunteer part of my life, my, the service part of my life, and um, which... I have a good friend, my friend Marion Wright Edelman, who runs the Children's Defense Fund, now retired, but she always says, service is the rent you pay for living. And I think we all owe it to, to our society to do service at some level. And America Sings is my service project and has been for 34 years or whatever. So, mm, so it's, been, it's really been wonderful. <laughs> I think we've had about 500,000 kids that have participated in America Sings festivals. Because after that first one, then we started moving them around the country. We did them in Nashville and Los Angeles and, you know, Chicago and Dallas and oh, Orlando. You know, all of, we move them around to give more kids a chance. Mm -hmm. This year, we're going to be back in Washington, D.C. It just seems appropriate coming out of COVID and, and uh, try to get things started again. So. Yay, that's so great. Thank you for asking. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> it is great. So you have a new project, JJ and Me. After about the 19 years of doing Music Express with Hal Leonard, they decided to go a different direction with their elementary resources. And so they've started a, a new project called EEMC. And um, there really wasn't a, a, a desire there to have new material. Um, and so they're basically decided to sort of take all the stuff that we've created over the, I've been with Hal Leonard for 30 some years. And so it was a great, I was wonderful to get to write musicals and, and textbooks and all that kind of stuff with them. Basically they, they took the stance of um, kind of taking that stuff and making a digital format, digitizing it all and making it a format for music teachers. But they didn't necessarily have a place for new material from a guy like me. But, but that's what I do. <laughs> I kept saying to them, <laughs> I write shows and I write uh -huh. songs and I write lesson uh -huh. plans and I make videos. That's what I do. And I'm not ready to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started a new company called JJ and Me. And it is, an, um, it is similar. There's no getting around to it. It's similar to Music Express. It has a lot of the same elements. Mm -hmm. Original songs and arrangements of pop tunes and show tunes. We got a musical uh, musical world section where we do music from around global, global music. We have videos in which I teach dances to the kids. We have bucket drumming lessons. We have, um, you know, lesson plans that go along with the songs. Uh, we have, you know... Interviews with people who are who are spending their life um, doing music or or having a contribution to music. So a lot of the same elements that we did with Music Express, but you know, in some ways, being independent of a large publishing company um, gives you some freedom to really do what you want to do. And so, <laughs> and mm -hmm. and don't get me wrong, I loved my years at Hal Leonard. I loved what I did every single day and with the company. And I was working with all of my friends there. And so, you know, I loved it. But this is a new chapter and I'm equally excited about what it what I can do with this. Mm, great. So if you're in, anybody's interested, that of course we have a website. So our <laughs> jjandmeinc.com, you have to put you have to put that ink in there. I think JJ and me was something else. I don't know, a fitness group or something, but <laughs> jjandmeinc.com is where people can go to find out more about about that. It'd be wonderful.
to mm. do so. Mm-hmm. So, oh, and so one more thing about that is we decided to do, we're doing live workshops again. Last summer, we did a workshop in Dallas, Fort Worth called JJ and Me, the John Jacobson Music Experience Live. So um, the JJ and Me counts many ways, but one of the ways it's, it's um, music experience. So we did it live in Fort Worth last summer and we'll be back in Fort Worth doing um, JJ and Me Live uh, next July 11th and 12th. So that it's a workshop for teachers to come and hopefully get reinvigorated. And lots of my Hal Leonard friends and other publishing friends from Alfred and from uh, other publishing companies will be there um, to show off their new materials and uh, hopefully motivate and, and uh, teachers to get back in there and, and do what they do for, for another year. Oh, that's so much fun. Uh, did, you, did you say where this was located? Yeah, it's in Fort Worth, Texas. It'll be in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, July 11th, July 11th and 12th. And I think the big lesson for me on that, uh, for that, is that, you know, and, and what we're trying to encourage people to come out of these work, this workshop with is that, you know, this COVID thing has not been fun for teachers. It's been a miserable, difficult thing to teach during these COVID years. And, but there have been some good things that have come out of it. For instance, one of the things that I, I see happening is that, you know, it used to be when you'd see a long-term teacher and there's a brand new teacher coming into a school, that long-termer had to teach the young person a lot about what it really means to be a teacher, stuff they didn't teach you in an undergraduate school. But what I've seen during COVID is these young teachers come in and they're actually mentoring the long-termers about technology and the things that come so naturally to them. So it's a much more symbiotic partnership, I think, in a lot of ways. And to me, that, that's healthy and good. Both, both people feel valued. But in the end, after this year is over, we are not going to ever teach music the same again. I don't think so. Not with all this technology and all of that. We have this, all these tools now, new tools, I think, at our disposal. But here's the important lesson why I think people should still come to a live workshop is that the reasons we teach music, the reasons we teach are exactly the same as they were before COVID. You know, so although our techniques might change, why we teach music to remind, and for me, the number one reason we teach music is simply to remind the world that beauty still exists in the world. And it is best demonstrated in the voices, in the dances of students, of children. And that's why we teach. It's a huge responsibility to remind the world of beauty. It's a huge responsibility, but it's our duty to do so. And it will be this. It was that before COVID. It will be that after COVID. So let's get together and remind each other of that, share ideas, share inspiration so that we go back next school year and um, carry on where we left off. Uh, That's so great. And I hope, believe me, if traveling were not an issue, you know, I wish everyone could go and uh, I wish all teachers could go and everyone could enjoy something like that because I I think we're in need of a refresher of something to kind of pull us out of the mud and the muck right now. Um, It's so hard every day to get up and say, I know there are all these challenges on one hand, but I'm going to choose... I'm going to choose to look at the blessings and the good things. Uh, and then we hang on to that every day uh, because there are just so many challenges right now for teachers and, and you just hit the nail on the head. So thank you for offering all of these opportunities for teachers to be re-energized and, and all these resources that you're putting out. I really appreciate it. And I know other people do too. 
Well, thank you, Megan. Yeah, I hope I hope it's still playing a role. Like I intend to do it for a while, you know, until they until they drag me out of here feet first, I guess. But yeah, it's a. I like I said, I don't know how to do anything else, so I have to um, I have to do this. This is what I do. So, <laughs> and you know, I, I have been so blessed blessed over the years. I've been so lucky that most of my career has been all about collaboration. It's been, I, I always have writing partners, people like John Higgins or Roger Emerson or Mac Huff or, you know, others that I collaborate with projects on. And I think I love that. I, I, I love that. And so like the JJ and me experience is still, it's still a collaborative project. I mean, although I'm, it's my name on it, but it's all these really talented people that are offering their gifts to it. And the JJ and me and live experience is exactly that. It's a collaboration of all these brilliant people coming together and hoping, hoping to make something really effective and wonderful for people. So I think teachers are great collaborators. And when teachers of the arts get together, they, it, that's sort of tenfold, I think, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we are better together. Mm -hmm. I always say that African proverb, you know, if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, travel alone. If you want to go far, travel together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we do as teachers and musicians. That's great. You know, uh, one thing I learned about you, John, that I thought was really interesting uh, is that you have a master's degree in liberal studies in American literature. And yeah. you're, you're so like well-rounded. You have all these things <laughs> going on. And I do appreciate that you acknowledge privilege. You know, um, a lot of the reason you have the things mm -hmm. you do is because of the privilege you have. And you're passing that on to other people instead of keeping that to yourself. And, and so I, I hope our listeners are really picking up on that because it's such a, a life lesson. And I want you to talk about um, composing, how you describe yourself primarily as a lyricist. You love words, poetry. And so what is it about words, uh, the power of words, not just in music, but in our everyday lives? Why are you so drawn to that? Well, that's a good question. I, I suppose just um, my father loved poetry. And we, um, in fact, when my father passed away, my mother gave each of us that big Reader's Digest, thick version of American poems. Because as kids, my dad would read those to us aloud, often. And all of us, 10 kids would be sitting there and dad would read, you know, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening or uh, let me live in the house at the side of the road and be a friend of man. You know, some of these great American poems my dad would, would read to us all the time. So he loved poetry and he wrote poetry. And um, so we, we grew up around that. And uh, we used to play a, a, dic a game called dictionary. My dad would like, um, you'd, you'd pick a word out of the dictionary and then you'd make up a definition for it. And people would have to decide if you were making up a definition or if that was really it, you know? <laughs> and we'd pass the dictionary around the room. I mean, it sounds like a nerdy family, but we, <laughs> we, you know, we loved it. And it was, mm -hmm. it was what we did. Yeah. So we, I always loved that. And we were always encouraged to read a lot. I mean, I think if you can teach a kid to love to read, you've done them such a favor. Mm. I mean, it's, you, it's just a place that to escape to. It's a space, a place to learn about the world. Um, and I think, you know, if you never, it, it's, it's just a really important thing to, if you can get your kids to love to read, that's just a really great thing. And I still love to read. I'm not a particularly fast reader, but I always have a book or two going. And um, I just finished 
that biography of um, Ulysses S. Gramps that's about that thick, Chernow's thing. It took me months to read it, but I, <laughs> but I love that. So when I went, to, and here's the thing, when, when you're an undergrad in music education, you take all these one credit courses that, you, that meet five days a week and mm-hmm, all of that. Mm-hmm, you very yeah. rarely have much time to take things outside of your own, you know, the music edu- music and then the education courses. When you're a music ed person, especially, you take music courses, you take education courses, and there's not much time for much else. So when I wanted to do a master's, I really, I, I chose to go to Georgetown because I wanted to do, I wanted to read the great books and I wanted to um, learn, broaden my own thinking. And Georgetown had a great international studies program. Now, I wasn't about to stop my career and go full-time back to college. So I just took whatever course they offered on Monday night. And and eventually, after a few years, I had my 30 credits of a master's, and they called it liberal studies. And they said, well, you have to sort of focus on something. And I liked American literature, so I focused on American literature, which meant that I probably had 20 credits on, on literature and 10 credits on other stuff, you know. And it was just a great, when it was over, I didn't want to quit taking courses. I wanted to just keep going. Um, but but that, that was really why it was. It wasn't that I was looking for a career change or anything. It was just I liked taking the classes that encouraged me to with to be with other people that wanted to read the great works of literature mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and study them and learn about them and get and learn about them from really brilliant professors' perspectives and other people that were attending at the time. So it was a privilege, one of those kind of privileges that you can, you know, I had the kind of career that I could sort of plan it and keep my career going and do a master's at the same time. And so it was great. So for my, believe it or not, for my thesis, I had to do a thesis to end your master's program. I actually wrote a kind of a historical novel um, called Always a Red Cloud. I never published it or anything, but it was um, it was a story about uh, a real live American uh, Native American who grew up in my near me in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, two two Native Americans. Uh, one his name is Decora, who was a uh, Indian back in the. 1800s and a heroic figure in our uh, Wisconsin history and then there was a guy named Mitchell Red Cloud who won the Medal of Honor in the Korean War and he was also from the town I was born in in Wisconsin and so I kind of put I told their stories in parallel as my master's thesis it stinks it's awful writing it's just not good at all but the but the story but I loved doing the research and I loved the idea of it and somebody who was really good at it could really make a wonderful story out of it. Mm. That just wasn't me. I, I mean, I did finish it. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, but, oh boy, it, it needs a lot of work. <laughs> Maybe awesome. in my retirement, I'll take it out. That's what I was going to say is in your next season of life, that's what you're going to do is you're going to write this story, you're going to get it published, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It, you know, that was a long time ago. I'll have to dig it out and see if I can if I can not humiliate myself by even reading it again so one of these days. So. Uh, anyway, it was great. So. What piece of writing has had a significant impact on your life? Um, because you talk a lot about your reading and you love American literature. Uh, what stands out in your mind as being an anchor for you? Well, I would say a couple of things. Yes, yeah, I do love reading biographies. I like reading about other people's lives. Like I just said, I, I just finished that Chernow's book about Grant, and he's also the one who wrote, you know, the Hamilton book that the musical was made out of. So, I, and I and I had enjoyed reading those sorts of books about other people's lives for sure. Um, so I, I would say that important. I think there are certain. I just. Um, finished a book called The Overstory, 
and um, it's about trees and how they communicate with each other. And the writing uh, is unbelievable, unbelievable writing. And it's um, I, there were five words on every page I had never heard of before. So it took me forever to read this book. But it's sort of one of those when you, it's such a humbling experience to read. Sort of like Mitchell Cloud, Mitchell's uh, Cloud Atlas. When I, re I remember reading that book and when I finished it, just being, feeling so humbled as a writer because of the extraordinary talent of these authors like that. So that being said, I, I do love that kind of thing. In my own work, one of the works that I'm most proud of, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's out of print now, but um, Emily Crocker and I worked on a little show called A Tree in Tappan Wood. And it was um, sort of a, a long poem interrupted by songs, um, but it was sort of basically the history of America in a lot of ways. And it was about this big tree that stands in the forest and sees things that go by in American history, like the Lincoln-Douglas debates and like the, the first Thanksgiving and, um, you know, things that, that happened in our country and from this tree's perspective of what has made this country great. And it was one of the, uh, one of the works that I'm most proud of. I remember sending it to Emily with the first draft and her reading it. And she wrote back to me and she said, it's perfect. And, I, and, th and that was like the greatest compliment because she doesn't say that on a, on a, like, that's not her job to say that. Her job is to tell you how you can make it better. But that particular project was just, it just came, it just came out. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. And so I guess that kind of ties those two things together, that my lack of reading historical um, biographies and all that, and then writing sort of this book about American history in a, through a tree, but slash child's point of view was rewarding. Mm. So. What do you want your legacy to be, John? <laughs> well, you know, that's a, I've never worried, t spent too much time worrying about legacy. Um, I kind of think do the best you can while you're here. Um, I, I've always tried to live my life through three, three word phrases. One is God is love. I believe that. Um, the second love with a capital L don't get me messed up in too many other details. God is love. That's about as much as I can handle. And if everybody would embrace that, I think we'd have a better world. The second one is that uh, is um, that I love you. I love I love people. I am one of those that you have to be careful. You get caught with me in an elevator because I'll uh, it, to me it's a new friend that I've got captive for thirty seconds. You know, <laughs> I am I just love people. The weirdest ones in the world to me are just the most interesting. And I I like normal people. I like eccentric people. I just I like people. Mm. And I, and so my dad used to say, love is good and hate is bad. Mm. And that, if I could leave a legacy of God is love and I love you. And then finally, maybe this is my Disney years coming out. The final <laughs> one is that fate is kind. And I think, you know, that song, fate is kind. It brings to those who love the mm. sweet fulfillment of their <laughs> secret longing. A dream is a wish your heart makes. Well, you know, I think that in the, if you've lived a life of, God is love and I love you that probably fate will treat you kindly. Mm. And it may not happen this week. It may not happen next month. It may not happen to you meet your maker. But if you've lived a life of God is love and I love you, fate will probably treat you very well. And that's a good enough legacy for me. Thank you so much. Is there any question you wish I would have asked you or anything else you'd like to share? Well, you know, let me say one last thing then, and, and that is, uh, 
talking about you, giving your time, you know, somebody like this, sharing this time, you know, growing up in that family of 10 kids, there is one thing that always sticks in my mind is that, you know, we had a time at night at 5.30 or whatever it was where we were all sat down for dinner. But when you get to junior high and high school, most of the time, you're not all there at the same time. Somebody's off at play practice or at church rehearsal or choir rehearsal or a basketball game or something. But my mother had this thing where we would all sit down at the table and then we would look around and see who's not there. And my mother would fill their plates with some food and put that in the refrigerator or in the oven or, you know, set it aside so that when they came home, they would make, there would be something there for them. Otherwise, you know, with 10 kids, you can imagine that once she said, okay, you can eat the frenzy began. But what I think we learned from that lesson with my mother ever saying anything was that this is what you do as human beings. Sit down at the table with the other human beings and look around and make sure that everybody's taken care of before even you help yourself. Make sure that there's enough, there's enough, you'll still get your share. But sit down, look around the table, and make sure that everybody's taken care of. Then let's move forward together. That lesson is seared in my heart, and it's why it's easy to share this experience with you, and hopefully to share our music and our love for teaching and loving and learning with the rest of the world. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to Sing Coach Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.